Great. Do have that passage open in front of you. Um, it would be very helpful to follow, the, follow it on page 1076, or 1077, I should say. Um, let me just add to Mike's prayer as we begin. Our loving Father, we thank you that you are a speaking God, and we ask, Lord, that you would speak to us now, that you would give us sheep-like listening ears, uh, that we would learn what it means to follow you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and if you believe in his name, you will receive everlasting life. Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and if you believe in his name, you will receive everlasting life. If this is true, then everything in your life, in my life, surely has to revolve around it. If it is true, then God has created this world, he has created you, and he has a plan and a purpose for you whoever you are, and that is to know him, to love him, to enjoy him, yes, today, but also one day in his company forever. And that is why he made you. Everything else in life is secondary, one might even say negligible. So how confident are you that Jesus is the Christ? That he is the Son of God? How is your confidence in that? And to those among us who perhaps are yet to answer Jesus' call to follow him, how confident are you that Jesus is not the Christ? the Son of God. Well, John has written this account, this eyewitness account, that you would truly believe. He's written this account that you would believe, be confident that Jesus is who he said he is. And our passage comes at the end of a section in John where he is specifically answering the question, well, who is he? Who is Jesus? The book begins with evidence, it then moves on to identity, and in the next chapter it starts exploring life, the eternal life that we have in his name. So it fulfills that verse, chapter 20, verse 30, 31, doesn't it? And our Bible reading here really puts it to us. It's very black and white. We have the religious leadership, the opponents of Jesus, which uh, John calls the Jews, um, picking up stones to destroy Jesus. So on that, that, and then we have reference to the sheep, those who believe in Jesus' name. So there's no middle ground. There's no sitting on the fence. And as John largely brings to an end this presentation of Jesus' identity, he addresses questions that you might be harboring in your heart. I certainly have found this very challenging passage to study this week. One of those questions being, how do I truly know I'm a Christian? 
a sheep? Do I really belong to Jesus? Another related question, will I manage to keep going as a Christian? Has my sin or a particular sin put my salvation in jeopardy? Why don't some people believe? What about my lovely cousin who's heard the gospel many times and is sympathetic but just won't open the door to Jesus? Perhaps you wouldn't call yourself a Christian at the moment and you're thinking along the lines of, well, if Jesus appeared to me right here and now and did some sort of miracle, then yes, I would believe. Well, this passage addresses that as well and it you'll find out, spoiler, it ain't necessarily so. John, an eyewitness, the life and death of the resurrection of Jesus Christ gives it to us straight. So I put it on a slide. Jesus' miracles prove his words and the testimony of John the Baptist. Firstly, that he is the promised Messiah that will rescue God's chosen people. And secondly, that he is the only son of God, the Father. So let's look at that first title. And I'm going to read verse 22, uh, 23 and 24, I think. Then came the feast of dedication at Jerusalem. It was winter, and Jesus was in the temple area walking in Solomon's colonnade. The Jews gathered around him saying, How long will you keep us in suspense? If you are the Christ, tell us plainly. That's the million dollar question. Back in chapter 1, John the Baptist was asked the same thing, and he confessed freely, no, I am not the Christ. John had not performed any miracles. He was simply proclaiming the coming of the Christ, the Messiah. Now, someone who was performing many miracles was being asked the same thing. Here he is. Note the exasperation. Tell us plainly, Jesus of Nazareth. Tell us plainly. And Jesus says, I have. And he has. And maybe you're thinking, well, why doesn't he just repeat himself now? Make it clear in front of them there and then. Well, this is because they misunderstand what the role of the Messiah or the Christ is. If he announces himself as such, they're going to expect a political and military leadership. Which is why they're asking him to say it plainly. Because despite all the evidence that he is the Messiah... They've seen no hint of it, of him getting ready for this revolution, getting arms to his band of men. And today, verse 22, this is the feast of dedication. And Jesus needs to be particularly careful at this feast because it marks a tremendous victory of the Jews against their occupiers 160 years before. A terrible Syrian ruler called Antiochus Epiphanes the Antichrist that Daniel uh, predicts back in the book of Daniel, had, uh, they had, he had overrun Jerusalem, he had desecrated the temple, placing a statue of his God in the holy place, turning it into a brothel. And then Judas Maccabeus, or Judas the Hammer, using guerrilla warfare, gathered the troops, and the brutal regime was defeated. And the temple was rededicated, the Feast of Dedication. 
And the city is abuzz with excitement as they mark this. It's also called the Feast of Lights. Everyone's lighting candles in their homes and things. This is their precious victory over the occupiers. And now, if Jesus, this local celebrity, really is the Messiah, we can have the same again against the Romans. And this is why these Jews, in verse 24, gather around Jesus wanting answers. We want military rescue. Are you the Christ? And too often we do want a rescuer of the similar ilk, don't we? A rescuer that suits me, gives me the things that I like. Um, And that's to put ourselves above God. Because you're silencing his opinion and insisting on yours. We hear people say, don't we, that this is how I like to think that God is like. Well, Jesus diffuses misunderstanding. And he brings his questions back to his word. Verse 25. I am who I've said I am. I'm the true light. I'm the bread of life. I am the good shepherd. My miracles that I've done in front of you prove it. I am the Christ. But I'm not the Christ that you want. If you don't believe it, verse 26. You don't believe it because you are not part of my flock. And this is very helpful when it comes to those confusing times when friends or loved ones listen to the gospel, they even believe it, but refuse to do nothing about it. They hear the voice, but they don't truly listen. Why? Because they're not one of his sheep. They're not among those God and his sovereignty has called before the time began. And these past two weeks, we've understood that Jesus' language of flock and sheep being the true people of God. Um, and verse 27 and 20 to 29, Jesus describes his relationship to the sheep and even more incredibly, his relationship to the Father. Let me just read those verses. Verse 27. My sheep listen to my voice. I know them and they follow me. I give them eternal life and they shall never perish. No one can snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me, is greater than all. Jesus has proved to be the good shepherd, and those who are his sheep will be the ones who listen and respond. The unbelievers are not part of the flock. So despite witnessing Jesus doing all those miracles, and perhaps your friends say that that would make them change their mind, it doesn't. They don't listen to the shepherd And he doesn't know them. There's no relationship. It's like when I would go and pick up the children from playgroup back in the day. In the melee of the noise and the running around, I would call out the names of the children and they would come to me. Why? Because they recognized my voice and they wanted to go home. And they know I love them. So Jesus knows the sheep. And he doesn't know those who aren't in his flock. And it reminds me of those frightening verses in Matthew 7 that says, um, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only the one who does the will of my Father. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and in your name drive out demons, run churches, preach sermons in the streets? 
and I will tell them plainly, I never knew you. It's a huge warning, isn't it, to those who refuse to follow the shepherd and instead devise our own religious or spiritual way of living. But these verses are a huge comfort for those of us who really are sheep belonging to the shepherd. And I don't mean confident, faithful heroes of the faith. I mean sheep. You remember what we've been hearing about sheep. You know, they're a bit dim, a bit wobbly. They're prone to wonder. But nevertheless, recognizing the shepherd's voice and seeking him to follow, seeking to follow him. Verse 27, my sheep, says Jesus, listen to my voice. Verse 28, I give them eternal life. I give them eternal life and they shall never perish. Death has lost its sting. Life will go on into eternity. Why? Because they're with the shepherd who gives them life, who has defeated death. But note the beginning of the verse. It is a gift, eternal life. It's not earned through our good behavior or good choices. As sheep, we're chosen by the shepherd. In in John 15, later, Jesus says, you did not choose me, I chose you. You did not choose me, I chose you, and appointed you to go and bear fruit. He gives us eternal life. We're still responsible for how we respond to Jesus, but in his sovereignty, God chooses us. He loves us because he loves us. In fact, verse 29, the father has given his flock to Jesus. Happy birthday. Thank you, Father. He gives to the delight of the son, his people. And again, in John's gospel, we see the father and the son working together in tandem. As the father gives his son the sheep, it means that Jesus can answer to the question, are you the Christ, the Messiah? Well, his answer can be, well, my father seems to think so. And his sovereign calling of us, bringing us into his fold, is foundational to Jesus' next encouragement. Verse 28, no one can snatch them out of my hand. We're chosen, we're loved, and now no one can snatch them out of his hand. Our eternal security depends on how strong Jesus' hand is. Do we doubt that? Do we doubt his power? Because Jesus says, I will hold you in my hand so that no one can take you away from me. And too often we can worry, can't we, that we don't have enough faith. That we can't hold on to him. And we've let go of him in some way. Well, Jesus says, if you know me, if you belong to me, you can't get away from me. I've got you in my hand. You belong If you belong to me, that means, you know, we know that repent of our sins, we turn to Christ as the only son of God, we seek to follow him. When we do that, if we belong to Jesus, he never lets us go. It's the image of the strong hand holding on to the weak. Perhaps you remember a parent in a crowd grabbing your hand so that you can't can't be let go. You're safe. Well, no enemy, says Jesus, can snatch you away. No false religion, no false teacher, not even death 
can snatch you away from me, says Jesus. That's a great comfort, isn't it? And it's a, it's a great comfort for those who are bereaved. The good shepherd walks with his sheep through the valley, the shadow of death, into new pasture, into life, everlasting life with him. We sang at the beginning, "'Tis grace that brought me safe thus far, and grace will lead me home." How do I know that he'll keep me? He will hold me fast. Well, don't look within, but look to the shepherd. You're weak, but he's strong. And the more we look at him, the shepherd, the stronger that we become, the more confident we become. And we will realize more and more that he is actually the one holding us. We're utterly dependent upon him. It's great assurance. And returning to the father-son relationship, verse 29, Jesus testifies that the father is greater than all, and he too holds us in his hands. Both hands, father and son. Fantastic, isn't that? Double. When I was young, I remember my parents linking hands to make a swing so I could sit on it. And that's the image I have when I read these verses. The loving father and son, two sets of powerful hands, holding me, keeping me safe. So how do I know I'm a sheep? How do I know I'm a Christian? Well, you will know God working in you. If you're listening to Jesus, seeking to follow him, however wobbly that's going, um, he will. You can see him working in you. Don't be thrown by the truth of God's sovereignty, his gift of salvation. It's meant to be comfort to us. Because if it was up to me, my performance, I would be sunk. We'd forever be needing assurance daily, wouldn't we? Because we'd always be slipping up. Oh no, I've done it again. Will God let me in this time? And when it comes to the issue, when it comes to this issue, I've, dis I've discovered at my peril the danger of self-examination in this way. Forever looking within myself to see whether I am a sheep. Whether I'm worthy of being called a sheep. And this may manifest itself in a continued endless cycle of inviting Jesus into our lives again and again. Well, stop it. Rather than looking inside yourself, as I said, look to the shepherd. Look to Jesus. Listen to his words as you read them. And if you're feeling drawn to him again, you want to follow his words, then yes, you're a sheep. Don't panic. This is the evidence that you're born again and belong to him. The very fact you're concerned about your salvation as evidence. So stop giving your life to Jesus and get on with it. I hope you know what I mean by that. <laughs> and those who are listening who don't feel drawn to following Jesus as your shepherd, it might be that you're thinking, if God is sovereign over these things, then, and I don't, feel, I don't follow Jesus, then it's not my fault, is it? Well, here in the passage, Jesus is talking to those sorts of people, people who don't believe, and he's not letting them off the hook. They are responsible for their actions, for rejecting Jesus. And he wants them to see their perilous rejection of the God who made them. He, they're de-Israelizing themselves, if that's a word. No, it isn't. He wants them to humbly accept the title of sheep and reconsider answering the call of the shepherd. 
So if that's you, friends, you're utterly helpless without Jesus Christ. You are unable to believe unless he calls you, and he is calling you today. You need to see that you are a sheep who needs a shepherd. So pray, ask God that you will hear and recognize his voice. It's an easy prayer, isn't it? If you're there, Lord, answer me. Pray that you'll recognize his voice, and when you do, follow him. For this shepherd will keep his sheep to the very end. This is the hero that the people need. Which brings me to my second point, but it's very brief, so you'll be all right. As Jesus raises the stakes even more, So Jesus' miracles prove his words and the testimony of John the Baptist that he is the promised Messiah that will rescue God's chosen people. And secondly, he is the only son of God the Father. He is the only son of God the Father. In verse 30, he claims equality with God. I and the Father are one. And note that he's not saying he's an alternative God, but they are one and the same. And the Jews won't have such blasphemy, but it isn't. Verse 31, they pick up stones to stone him, as they did in chapter 8. But unlike chapter 8, this time Jesus stays and questions them. Verse 32, Jesus says, what about the clear evidence of the miracles? You know I am God. What Jesus is doing is beautiful. But they're so transfixed on his words that make himself God that they won't have it. But we know from John chapter 1 that the opposite of making himself God is true. He is God that's made himself man. It's the other way around. The word became flesh and dwelt among us. And then verse 34, Jesus quotes Psalm 82, very curiously perhaps. Then the Lord says to the leaders in Israel, you are gods. And Jesus is doing this at one level to calm them down. If those leaders get to be called gods, why not me? But then he goes on much further in verse 36. If humans can be called gods, what about the one whom God has set apart as his very own and sent into the world? In other words, am I claiming to be God? Well, God the Father is happy to call me his son, so you work it out. He has set me apart to do the same works as the Father. You work it out. If you don't believe me, verse 38, believe the miracles that I do. And you will see that the Father is in me and I am in the Father. Well, verse 36 again. uh, And that phrase, set apart um, or consecrated, Jesus is using very deliberate language because it's the feast of dedication. The dedications of the temple by the victors when they've driven out the enemy, remember? The Hanukkah. And it was returned to the worship of the one true God. So as Jesus stands, as we saw in verse 22, he stands in Solomon's colonnade in the temple courts. Verse 23, he's not just the new Solomon, He's the new temple. Solomon built it. Judas Maccabeus cleaned it up and dedicated it. 
but God consecrated Jesus, set him apart as the temple's replacement. Jesus is the new temple. And so he says, if you want to worship God, you come to me. And in fact, all the feasts in John's Gospels, Gospels says, it's all about, Jesus says it's about me. This feast is about me. And tonight at the five o'clock, we're looking at Luke 6. And we'll discover that Jesus says the Sabbath is about me. But verse 39, the leadership will not have it. And too often the world will not accept God's revelation of the Son. We say things like, well, it's okay, all paths lead to God. But that's not good enough. We've got to choose. Remember that C.S. Lewis quote that, Jesus, uh, that Steve read out last week? He's either mad, bad, or who he says he is. Jesus is the temple. He's the bread of life. He's the one who feeds us in the wilderness on this journey. He's the light of life. He's the water that quenches our thirst. He's the good shepherd. He's the king. He's the son of God. He's come to reform us, to lovingly change us. And so we ask, is the God of heaven and earth allowed to disrupt your religious your religion? Is he allowed to correct the faulty image of God in your mind? Well, the chapter ends on a very positive note. Verse 40 to 42 shows us Jesus has made his identity plain. The testimony of John the Baptist, followed by the miracles of Jesus, convinced those in the countryside, the other side of the Jordan, that Jesus is God, is Lord, and they believe in him. And brothers and sisters, would you not want to have the same epitaph as John the Baptist in verse 41? All that John said about this man was true. So Jesus says to all of us, Come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. He is the good shepherd. He loves you. He wants the best for you. He's going to keep you forever. So come to him afresh today hold for, he will hold you fast put an end to desecrating the temple with your misdirected worship turn away from your sin and guilt and follow him the shepherd well I'm going to pray and I'm going to use the words of Psalm 23 which the children wonderfully sang to us a little bit earlier it's a very personal psalm, Psalm 23. It starts saying, by saying, the Lord is my shepherd. Perhaps echo the words in your heart as I say them. Let's bow our heads. The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not be in want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside quiet waters. 
he restores my soul. He guides me in paths of righteousness for his name's sake. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. For you, good shepherd, are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. My cup overflows. Surely goodness and love will follow me all the days of my life. And I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Amen.